Luke 23, everybody. Last week, we looked at the injustice and the wickedness of the trial of Jesus. It was a mockery of court put on by the smartest and brightest and best of Jerusalem, those in power in Rome, the most conservative, the most liberal, the most powerful and the most peasant, the most religious and even the most moral, the most Jew and the most Gentile. From every different kind of demographic, we see that uh, the different crowds of people were demanding the crucifixion of Jesus. Everyone failed. Everyone, when put to the test, failed. And when it came to the sinless and guiltless innocence of the Savior, the sin and guilt of the world reviled. Jesus was put on trial six times. Three times were by the Jews, first by the high priest emeritus Annas, and then the current high priest Caiaphas, uh, and some members of the Sanhedrin. And then finally, kind of a more official daytime uh, court session with, uh, with the full Sanhedrin there. And then there were three courts done, three trials done by the Romans, first by Pontius Pilate, and then he was shoved over to Herod Antipas, then had to be bounced back to Pontius Pilate. No one could find any guilt in him. No one could convict him. Uh, even though they hired people to give false testimony, they had no evidence and none of the testimonies agreed. They made up charges. They beat him. They mocked him. They spit on him. They incorrectly accused him of blasphemy. They sarcastically and yet correctly called him a prophet, the Christ, and a king. And finally, they exchanged Jesus for a sinner, not just any sinner, uh, the vilest type of sinner, a, a, a criminal who should have died for his lawless deeds, um, a man named Barabbas. Undeservedly, Barabbas lived. In his place, Jesus died. And Jesus didn't die just a normal death. He died the death of the vilest sinner. In that exchange, the great plan of God is shown to us that Jesus trades places even with the vilest sinner to die in his or her place. We're going to pick up in, uh, in chapter 23, uh, in verse 26, but before we even get there, Luke skips a moment between the exchange of Barabbas and Jesus and then the walk to be executed on the cross, right? Luke goes from the Barabbas exchange to the walk to the cross, but he skips a moment. Right after Barabbas is released, there's a short little incident that interrupts before Jesus is led away to crucifixion, and it's talked about in Matthew 27 and Mark 15. I'm going to show it to you from the Mark 15 passage, starting in verse 15. It says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged or flogged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with the reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. 
and they led him out to crucify him. Now this means right after they released Barabbas and condemned Jesus, he was brought in for torture. He was something of a hilarious sight to see. All night he'd been beaten, spit on, blindfolded, struck on the head multiple times. His hair would be sweaty and matted. He has already been praying and sweating like great drops of blood. When he was sent to Herod uh, Antipas, they, they dressed him in fancy clothes to mock him. He was swollen, his face was bloodied, and yet they threw on rich and fancy clothing on him because they said he was a king. And now being sentenced to crucifixion, it's customary to scourge or flog the prisoner to accelerate the process of death on the cross. They use a, a cat of nine tails. It's a nine-ended leather whip with barbed ends, either with bone or steel or iron, to tear, uh, to tear the flesh on the back into shreds and into ribbons and strings so that it hangs off the body. You have to understand, he's not going to look very human at this point. In terms of shape, he's going to be swollen and battered. In terms of color, he'll be bruised and bloodied. In form, his flesh has been opened in his head, his mouth, his back, his sides. In terms of motion, he'll shake and wobble from the weakness and trauma. On top of that, there's simply the exhaustion from being awake for maybe approximately 36 hours by now, uh, likely not having eaten for almost 20 hours. He's been on his feet this entire time, except for when he's tied down to be flogged. The soldiers put that pur purple cloak on him. Matthew calls it a scarlet robe, uh, and he does that for irony. Scarlet like our sins and a robe like a king. It's not a true purple. Purple is... Uh, is actually a royal dye at that time. It was too expensive. It's a scarlet military cloak, but it's intended to be mock purple. As it fades, it starts to have more of that kind of a, uh, a shade. It's a faded, discarded rag. It's dirty and gritty. It would stick to the exposed, bloody sinews of his open back. It would start to gum up against it. The thorn of crowns would have spikes or barbs up to three inches long depending on what kind of plant that he used. They had uh, many options. Uh, when they pushed that crown down onto his, his head, it would dig deep into his scalp, scraping into bone. The scalp for the human body is one of the most vascular areas of the, uh, of the body, and so there would be profuse, copious bleeding from the head. They'd strike him on the head with the rod and spit on him. And then they bowed. They bowed and said, Hail to the king. If only they knew. If only they knew who he was. If only they knew that someday they really would bow properly and say hail to the king. I mean, that's a point we have to understand. Everyone will eventually bow to Jesus and confess that he is Lord, the master of every soul. Every person who has ever lived will fall down before him and worship him. But those who rightly, humbly, repentantly hail him as king in this life, when they do that in the future, they will join him for eternity. 
The ones who do not, they will still bow down in the future and then go to eternal punishment. Having scourged Jesus, he's finally led away to walk almost half a mile, maybe up to one and a half miles, uh, depending on where, where the location is that he's going. But he has to, he has to walk, uh, and a, a captive who's going to crucifixion has to carry the cross beam, the horizontal beam, usually. Uh, Jesus is going to have to carry that in his feeble state. In terms of timing, it's a Friday morning, and it's about 9 a.m., and it's not just any Friday, it's preparation day. It's the day of Passover where Judean Jews will slay Passover lambs to atone for sin around 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. That's when they'll slay their lambs. And then they'll celebrate Passover around sunset, around 5 p.m. Uh, and they'll do that, you know, eating the flesh of the Passover lamb uh, to celebrate God's forgiveness of sins the atonement of sins. This is where we pick up in Luke. The event of his, uh, his scourging has taken place. He's been given that crown of thorns. He was dressed in a robe, and then that robe was taken away, no doubt re reopening certain wounds uh, that had started to coagulate shut. We're going to go in four sections today. We'll start with the road to Calvary, chapter 23, verses 26 to 31. And then we'll talk about the crucifixion, verses 32 to 43. And then we'll key in toward the end of the crucifixion. We're calling that the seventh trial, verses 44 to 49. And then we'll talk about the burial, verses 50 to 56. Let's start with the road to Calvary. Uh, Jesus will now embark on a walk that is anywhere between 0.4 to 1.4 miles depending on exactly where he was crucified. There's, there's no mention of a legally obligated herald calling out his name, his charge, his accusers, or asking for any exonerating evidence. These are things that the, the great Sanhedrin would, uh, would do legally. Uh, it, was a, it was a mandate by law to do this in order to give every opportunity for a captive to be exonerated and set free so that no innocent man is ever put to death. But this process was so accelerated for Jesus that they skipped every opportunity and they manufactured testimony and they, they created charges that weren't true. Jesus is made to carry his cross, the horizontal beam, but in his weakened state, naturally, he's probably very slow and stumbling. And so we get to verse 26. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. Uh, this, is, this is not unusual. Soldiers could press civilians into service. They picked this guy, Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is, a, uh, this guy's from far away. He's from North Africa. He's from uh, Tripoli today. That's where Cyrene is. Uh, Clearly, Simon is only in Jerusalem because it's Passover. Passover is one of the three major feasts that all Jewish men have to go to every year. They all have to come to Jerusalem, to the temple, uh, in order to celebrate this, uh, this holiday. And so he's there for Passover. And, uh, and he just, wrong place, wrong time. 
He gets recruited. He's forced to carry Jesus' cross. If you remove this verse, you lose nothing. If you, if, you, if you skip the whole mention of Simon of Cyrene, you lose nothing. You don't, you don't lose any theology. You don't lose anything. This is only here, Luke's way of, of telling you what historically took place. This is a moment that actually happened while he was going. And it's only included to show that other people were involved in Jesus' crucifixion. I suppose as a matter of trivia in, in Mark 15... Simon of Cyrene is also then referred to as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Father of Alexander and Rufus. And so it's assumed then that the original audience uh, for whom Mark had written would know who Alexander and Rufus are. And, and uh, what's, what's interesting there is that in Romans 16, when the Apostle Paul is greeting many people in the church, he does greet Rufus. And it, it could be that Rufus was a believer the son of Simon of Cyrene, and that Simon of Cyrene in this moment came to faith. It's speculative, but it's possible. Verse 27, And there followed a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for Jesus. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Now, we don't know if these women were sincerely mourning or if this is just the traditional lamenting uh, that they would do whenever someone is about to die. You know, there would be a company of women that would come and, uh, and they, would, they would lament and mourn and wail uh, as a cultural custom. But Jesus seems to treat them as sincere. He seems to take their mourning as sincere and he, he speaks to them uh, not vengefully, not angrily. He doesn't seem to have taken any personal offense. He speaks to them very lovingly. He speaks truth to them, difficult truth, but he speaks truth to them. Luke, the author, uh, has consistently throughout his gospel put women in a sympathetic light, in a good light. And so I, I do think that the women that are following here mourning are put in a positive light. This contrasts with the men who were demanding just a moment ago that Jesus die, the bloodthirsty crowds. Women were not allowed to vote in the courts. They were not allowed to have a say in that. So the men alone were demanding the, the death of Jesus, and here are the women lamenting. Luke always lifted up people of low standing, women, children, beggars, slaves, lepers, etc. And yet Jesus tells these women not to weep for him. His death will be painful, yes, but he also knows that his vindication and his resurrection are only hours away. The real issue, the real tragedy is what will happen to people who reject him, who do not repent, who do not trust in him. And Luke gives us a special insight here into the fate of Jerusalem, something that he mentions more than any of the other gospel authors. Jesus talks about the prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem, which he's already spoken of in chapter 21, verses 20 to 24. The horror 
In that day, when Jerusalem is destroyed in the end times, the horror in that day will be so bad that Jewish women who throughout the ages have considered uh, uh, children to be a blessing and considered barrenness to be a curse, the suffering will be so bad, the horror will be so bad that, uh, that the women in that day will see their children going through so much suffering and so much death that the mothers would wish that they had been spared that agony. They would say, I'm blessed if I were barren. And having children is a curse because of the immense grief. It's a quote from Hosea 10.8. People will either be wishing the mountains would fall on them and cover them to crush them or maybe to protect them. Either way, it'll be terror. They will look to mountains, to, to monuments of earth to try to shield them or destroy them quickly. And Jesus ends his warning with, with uh, verse 31. Verse 31, he says, For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? It's a weird statement. Jesus is saying that people are wicked now. They're, they're definitely wicked now, but it'll be even worse later. I think you understand fire is much worse in a dry forest than a wet one, in a brown forest than a green one. Right now, they have the scriptures. Right now, they have Jesus, which is the presence and glory of God in flesh on earth right there with them. But a day will come when he's not there. The church is not there. The scriptures are not there. A day will come when Israel will be all alone. There will be no divine presence, no divine protection. And their wickedness and the wickedness of all the nations, of, uh, the wickedness of a reunited Roman Empire, will be worse than ever. The wickedness you see right now, that's fire in, in a green forest, fire in a wet forest. The wickedness later when, when the protection of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the church, the truth of the scriptures, when that's all taken away, watch the wickedness that happens when the forest is dry. It's an odd way to spend a walk to the cross. Jesus warns that Jerusalem will experience unprecedented suffering throughout the history of the entire world. He doesn't indicate any vengeful motive. He just very lovingly, truthfully warns how wickedness ends in suffering. And then he arrives. The crucifixion takes place in verses 32 to 43. It says, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Stop there for a second. All four Gospels talk about the crucifixion, but none of them portrays the physical agony. They don't really talk about the pain at all. Maybe that's because the original audience would be very familiar with the gruesomeness Today, we don't have crucifixion, so, you know, explanation is helpful for us to, 
understand its context and its immensity. But do you notice how Luke and the other gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, and John, they really just kind of relay the stark facts with a very sober restraint. Jesus was flogged, they hit him, they put a crown of thorns on him, they crucified him. It's all facts, no drama, no emphasis on pain to try to, to buy your, your sympathy in that way. It's just information. And this is how we know that it wasn't physical pain that Jesus dreaded in Gethsemane when he prayed, take this cup from me. It was not the physical pain because the authors then would, that would focus on the physical pain. The reality that the authors deal with is the spiritual anguish of Jesus carrying all the sins of the world, forsaken by the Father. The rest of the Bible makes no remark about the physical pain. They talk about the cursedness of being crucified. They talk about the shame of the iniquity of the transgression of the wickedness of the world placed upon him. Jesus is crucified with two criminals as Isaiah 53 and Luke 22 mentioned to us that he was numbered with the transgressors and that crucifixion takes place on a hill that resembles a human skull. They call it the skull. Uh, we hear many names for it. The, the Aramaic name, the name that you might hear the most is Golgotha. Uh, or sometimes they pronounce it Golgotha. The actual pronunciation puts the emphasis on the last syllable, Golgotha. In, uh, when you push it to Greek, it's cranion, which is cra your cranium, your skull. In uh, Latin, it's calvaria, which is how we get Calvary. All of these speak about the same, same place. Matthew and Mark call the criminals lestai, lestai, criminals, but robbers. Uh, traditionally, I think we refer to them as thieves. Robbers is probably a better translation. A thief steals using stealth and is not noticed. A robber steals using violence and fear. These were men who used violence and fear. They were lestai. And to be put to death on a cross like this, which was the, the highest form of disgrace and of shame and of punishment, they had to be extremely violent. They were murderous robbers. When Jesus arrives, uh, Luke skips a detail. It's talked about in Mark 15 and uh, Matthew 27. They offer him wine mixed with myrrh. That's what's actually mixed into it, says Mark. Uh, Matthew says that it's wine mixed with gall, and the uh, gall being the flavor. Uh, it, it tastes like bitterness. They offer it to him, and he tastes it, and he refuses it. Uh, the reason why uh, this is, is in there is because, uh, in Matthew and Mark, is because this wasn't a sedative or a painkiller. It wasn't a customary drink for criminals. Uh, the context flows without interruption in those Gospels. It's, this was torment. It was a malicious prank. Uh, by the time anyone gets to the cross after enduring what Jesus endured, they're going to be intensely thirsty. They offer him a drink. But imagine you offer someone water. You say, here, drink this. I know you're thirsty. But then you mix into it 
an obscene amount of salt. So then he drinks it and he can't drink it. It's a prank. They offer him this wine mixed with myrrh and tastes bitter like gall. They're laughing at him. It's not compassion, it's wickedness. This is how the soldiers are mocking him. They're, they're intensifying the experience. The contrast to this kind of treatment is the detail that Luke does give that the other Gospels do not. Jesus prays for the soldiers. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's like what he taught in chapter 6. He said, pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. The soldiers don't get it and they don't care. They gamble for his clothes. They're making sport of his death, winning trophies off of it, not even realizing that they're fulfilling a messianic psalm, Psalm 22, verse 18. Continue in, in Luke, though, verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 35. It says, And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. Well, here you have Jews and Romans in concert, both mocking Jesus. They finally have something that they agree upon and can enjoy doing together. Even though they hated each other, they unite for this activity. The Jews jeer at him for having saved people from sickness Demons, blindness, muteness, deafness, paralysis, even from death. But not being able to save himself from this predicament. The Romans laugh at him for the same reason. Luke mentions the inscription because it's sarcastic. The inscription says this is the king of the Jews. How many people actually believe that? None of them. In verse 36, the, soldier, the soldiers offer Jesus sour wine. That's a different moment than what was offered before the wine mixed with myrrh. This sour wine, uh, this is actually, a, you can drink this wine. It's, uh, it's a different moment than the one mentioned before, and there's another time where he's going to be offered wine uh, just before he dies. That'll be mentioned in the other Gospels, but... He's given sour wine here, and it's a wine vinegar. This is the normal drink for soldiers. It is to quench their thirst. Why would they offer it to him now? Right? They already tried in the beginning. He refused it. Now he's crucified. He's praying for them. They've divided his clothing and, and gambled for it. Some time has passed, and now they give him something to quench his thirst. Why? The reason for that would be to prolong his suffering. Why would you give thirst to a man dying of thirst? Why would you give drink to a man dying of thirst when he's being put to death? 
It's to make his death and his dying last longer. They don't want him to get delirious. They don't want him to pass out. They don't want him to lose out on any of the misery and pain. And now Luke gives us a, a moment during the crucifixion that none of the other Gospels tell us about. Verse 39. One of the criminals who were, uh, who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Technically, Matthew 27 and Mark 15 both say that robbers mocked Jesus. That's how it started. Both of these robbers, both of these murderers were mocking Jesus. That's how it began. And I wish verse 39 didn't translate the verb as, you know, one of them railed at him. I, I don't know why they chose to go that way. One of the criminals who were hanged blasphemeo at him. They blasphemed him. That's what it is. It's blasphemy. This tells you who Jesus is. Blasphemy is saying an offensive thing at or about God. They are saying offensive things at Jesus. They are saying offensive things at God. Jesus is God. When they mock Him, they blaspheme. Both robbers were doing that. Somewhere along the line, during the time on the cross, one of the robbers changes his mind. And as one robber continues to blaspheme, the second one rebukes him. Now, the conversation isn't done yet, right? There's more to say about what's going on with these robbers. But I want you to know that this conversation that Luke includes seems to serve two purposes. And I'll talk about the first one now, then we'll read a couple more verses, and then I'll talk about the second one. But this first purpose that I, I really do think that Luke is trying to highlight again and again throughout these, these final chapters is the innocence of Jesus. It's Jesus' innocence. Ironically, his innocence is not proclaimed by some theological scholar or religious leader or even a neutral and a lawful judge. His innocence is declared by a guilty criminal. Even now, when it comes to salvation, that's precisely the kind of person who understands who Jesus is. Like, this is how God wants the righteousness, the innocence of Jesus to be proclaimed by guilty sinners. It's the person who's guilty of sin and knows it understands and accepts his condemnation and proclaims the innocence, the righteousness, the sinlessness, and the worthiness of Jesus. It's the person who stands before God poor. Patahas. Poor in spirit. 
with nothing to offer, nothing to boast in, nothing to stand on. The person who makes no bargain. It's the person who looks at Jesus with a heart that fears the Lord, reveres him with shock and awe, but not terror. It's the person who knows in himself there's only guilt, deserved punishment, and yet recognition that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the King. His is the kingdom, His is the power, His is the glory forever. He's not a dying man that should be mocked. He's a coming king who should be worshipped. And no one deserves to stand before him. No one is worthy to even untie his sandal. Yet here he is letting this happen to him. What happens to such a person? What happens to a guilty, murderous robber? The vilest of sinners. What happens to that person when that person says, I'm guilty, I'm unworthy, I fear God. Jesus, I know who you are. You're the king. What happens to such a person? Verse 42. The criminal said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. I love that this robber didn't ask for any special pardon anymore. He strikes no deal. Nothing to offer. The robber that was mocking Jesus said, Save yourself and us. This robber, he stopped that. Somewhere in there, he understood his unworthiness. Somewhere in there, he knows he doesn't deserve to be with the king. And he even says he deserves punishment. He's a criminal. And Jesus is the Christ. So all he asks is, Jesus, when you are in your kingdom, because I know who you are, and I know whose kingdom it is, when you are in your kingdom, please just remember me. That says so much in there. Remember me, Lord. Just think of me. Please don't hate me. I know it's too late, and I get it now. But I know who you are. I, I believe in you. So please just remember me. You are the Christ, 
You are the king. It is your kingdom. So when you're finally ruling the world in your kingdom, please just remember me. What happens to this man? Verse 43. Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now I said this conversation serves two purposes. The first was to highlight Jesus' innocence. I'm convinced that the second is to highlight Jesus' grace. His grace toward sinners. What happens to the one who knows he's guilty, unworthy, who fears God and just trusts Jesus, the King? Jesus' answer to that is paradise, salvation. This robber deserved death and hell, and he knew it. He came to Jesus with nothing but a changed mind, which means repentance and belief or trust or faith. They're all the same word. Belief that Jesus is the king. That man was saved right then and there. And he won't even have to wait for the kingdom. The kingdom's in the future, but Jesus says, even though the kingdom's in the future, today you will be with me in paradise. That's where Jesus was going to go. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't go to hell. He went to heaven. So did this thief. And when this thief dies, he doesn't go into some soul sleep, some kind of inert state some nonsense where he's spiritually unconscious until the, the time of the kingdom. He's in heaven. He's awake. He's active. He's with Jesus. And it's paradise. This is the innocence of Jesus. This is the grace of Jesus. And yet he'll die like a criminal after six trials and then a seventh on the cross. You recall from last week that Jesus was put on trial six times, three times by the Jews, Annas, then Caiaphas, then the Sanhedrin, and three times from the Romans, Pontius Pilate, Herod, and then Pilate again. Now Jesus is on the cross. He's been there from 9 a.m. till now, which is about noon at this point in the narrative. This will be referred to in, in their time as the sixth hour because they kind of started their clock at 6 a.m. So it's the sixth hour, which is noon. That's what it'll say in verse 44. Here and now I believe that there's a seventh trial that's implied, a condemnation that comes not from men but from heaven upon a sinless Jesus. Three times the Jews put Jesus on trial. Three times the Romans put Jesus on trial. Now, this is a trial over which God is judge. 
a seventh time, Jesus will be put on trial and he will be condemned as guilty despite his innocence. Luke gives it to us very briefly in just two verses, followed immediately by Jesus' death. Let me show you verse 44, 45, and then 46. It was now about the sixth hour, that's noon. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until about the ninth hour, that's 3, 3 p.m., while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Two supernatural events testify in this moment. First, darkness covers the land from noon till 3 p.m., three hours of darkness where the sun fails. Now, it's unclear whether or not the sun is just absent and it's total darkness and people would need to rely on torchlight or lamps. We don't know if that's the case. We don't know if it's, uh, if it's darkness where it's just thick clouds coming in, obscuring the sunlight. We don't know the extent of this darkness, whether or not it just covered Jerusalem, all Israel. We don't know. Regardless of whatever kind of darkness it was or however far it stretched, it's a sign of somber judgment from heaven. If you remember from uh, Luke 22, verse 53, Luke, uh, Luke says that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, and then he was arrested by his enemies, and he says to his enemies, he says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Right? The, the hour now belongs to you, and to the power of darkness. That's what he says. That's exactly what his enemies wanted. It's exactly what they got. Jesus was condemned and doomed. That's the enemy's hour. That's darkness's hour. Darkness has been a popular symbol for evil. In the Old Testament, it's often a symbol for judgment. I'll show you two moments. Uh, Amos chapter 8, verse 9. Amos chapter 8, verse 9. And on that day, declares the Lord Yahweh, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Zephaniah 1. Verse 15, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. This is how the Old Testament speaks of God's judgment. It comes with darkness. Darkness is here at noon. Judgment is here. The second supernatural event, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This is the curtain that uh, blocks the entrance to the most holy place, the holy of holies, as clarified for us in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. 
that that curtain, when it was, uh, it's been rebuilt and stuff, it stood 60 feet high. Jewish tradition tells us that it could have been four inches thick. To tear it from top to bottom would take supernatural strength and would have been extremely loud. Christians, of course, we uh, hear about the, the tearing of the curtain that guarded the presence of God. And we see the positive meaning of this, that the presence of God is now uh, not confined to a chamber in a temple, but it's now available to everyone, accessible through faith in Jesus. So we see the, the, the positive effect of this. But dial it back for a moment and put yourself in the mindset of the Jew for whom the temple was the centerpiece of your faith and culture, purpose, and life. And it was supernaturally destroyed by a clear act of God. Judgment is here. All it takes is two witnesses to testify a case in Jerusalem. Two miraculous events testify that Jesus, that Jesus is being judged and God is the one exercising judgment. Was Jesus guilty? No. But did God bring judgment upon him? Apparently so. Jesus died at 3 p.m. on Friday on the day of preparation of Passover. 3 p.m. And you know what was happening right at that time. All the southern Jews, the Judean Jews, the Jews of Jerusalem were slaying Passover lambs to celebrate God forgiving their sins, atoning for sin. If only they understood that this was a, a copy and a shadow of a thing to come, that the, the custom of the Passover lamb was to point the Jewish mind to the understanding of the Savior. If only Jerusalem knew what John the Baptist knew the moment he saw Jesus, long before Jesus did a single teaching or miracle. John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist knew it. He saw Jesus and he said, you, you're the Passover lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the last stages of crucifixion, one didn't have the strength to speak. They could usually only groan at best. Yet Matthew, Mark, and Luke all point out consistently that Jesus spoke with a very loud voice. He quotes from Psalm 31.5. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is a psalm about a righteous sufferer. It was used by Jews as an evening prayer to express faith and trust even when and especially when someone was suffering unjustly. Jesus was innocent. And Luke is hammering that idea with his words. Jesus was innocent. 
and he didn't deserve to die. Jesus' innocence or his sinlessness is crucial to understand what his death accomplished. So with that moment where he, he finally passes, two supernatural events have testified that divine judgment has taken place. And yet something odd is taking place here because those signs seem to have judged Israel, Jerusalem, rather than Jesus. The darkness was over the land. And the temple for the Jews was destroyed. So what's happening? Certainly God took Jesus' life. Judgment was rendered there. But there's judgment on Israel too. Something strange and mysterious is taking place. And when people see the cosmic events moving, the supernatural energy manifest, they react. They realize. Verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly, this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all Jesus' acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. After seeing the cosmic event of the darkness and certainly hearing the tearing of the temple curtain, people realize God was here. Judgment's been rendered and God is grieving. Something is wrong. The centurion is mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He exclaims, certainly this man was innocent. Innocent, in Greek, dikaios, that's an ambiguous word. It can also be translated righteous. But since this is in relation to Jesus being put on trial and put to death as a criminal, the centurion contextually is realizing that Jesus didn't deserve this. He is innocent. And now, to add to the irony, we have two witnesses, a robber and a centurion, both murderers, declaring that Jesus was innocent. This is Jesus's mock legal defense. If you have a look at the whole chapter, the robber and the centurion join Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas in declaring that Jesus is not guilty. 
The centurion saw the sign in the sky. He saw God break the temple. Luke says that the, the man said, certainly this man was innocent. Matthew and Mark color that in with another detail. The centurion says, this was the Son of God. This was the Son of God. The centurion not only realized that Jesus didn't deserve to die, but he knew Jesus was indeed from heaven. Behold, upon the cross, the Savior. The rest of the crowds are also affected, as well as Jesus' followers. It must have been a horrifying experience to realize that you demanded a man's death and then came to discover he was God's chosen one, and it's too late. Certainly, this will stick with the people and resonate in their hearts with guilt and anguish and fear. Fifty days later, Simon Peter, the leader of Jesus' 12 apostles, will stand up before those men. And he'll say, you crucified him. You did. You crucified him. And they were cut to the heart in Acts 2. Cut to the heart. And they said, what should we do now? And Peter, following in the example of Jesus, says, repent and believe and be saved. Jesus has died. and Now it's time to bury his body. We get to verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. Read that sentence again. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. Verse 51, who had not consented to their, to the Sanhedrin's decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Well, the burial of Jesus centers around two sets of characters, Joseph of Arimathea and some Galilean women that follow Jesus. And the point here is to show that true and faithful Jewish believers knew and loved Jesus. He was no criminal. Joseph of Arimathea is a complete surprise. It turns out he's a member of the council, that is the great council, the Jerusalem Sanhedrin. Where has he been this whole time? 
And yet Luke says he's good and righteous. He waits for the kingdom. Luke is trying to say that he's the real deal in his faith in God and the scriptures. He's not in love with the world. He knows that true treasure and, and true fulfillment happens not in this life, but in the one to come. And we can't say he's perfect. There was, there was some virtue to him. He didn't agree with the rest of the Sanhedrin. He wasn't bloodthirsty. He wasn't insisting on the death of Jesus. But it doesn't seem like he tried to stop them. There's no remark that he voted against them. Maybe he was still figuring things out. Maybe that. But I think more likely he simply kept quiet because he also feared getting targeted. Even Simon Peter denied Jesus three times for fear of the feverish mob that was going to murder the Lord. Joseph of Arimathea has realized that Jesus was no criminal and he believed that Jesus was the king. And so he, he won't let Jesus be buried disgracefully. It's like he's the only one out of all these Jewish scholars that cared about obeying Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, that says that if you crucify a man, you have to bury him on the same day because he's cursed. You have to bury him. Joseph of Arimathea requests Jesus' body from Pilate. He wraps it in, in a very fine cloth and he places it in an empty, never used before chamber, a tomb that he owns. That means that Jesus, though dying a, a criminal death, receives an honorable burial. It's still Friday. It's approaching sundown, which for the Jews begins the next day. And so it's approaching Sabbath. Now the women that are mentioned here, they're Galilean. They've been following Jesus. They're from Galilee, northern Israel. They've been following Jesus for some time. They watched Joseph take Jesus' body to the tomb so they don't, got, they don't get the wrong tomb. They don't get the wrong body or anything like that. They're, uh, they decide to take ointment and spices. Their intent is to honor Jesus' body with the customary wrappings. Those were, were done to a body to, to mitigate the stench and decomposition. Jews didn't embalm bodies. Now, technically, they are allowed to do this on Sabbath. But they make sure to rest on the Sabbath. They do as, they much as they can beforehand, and they do what they can afterwards. Luke shows their faithfulness. They don't take the law lightly. The women intend to return to the tomb after Sabbath. They intend to return to the tomb on Sunday morning. They expect that the body will still be there because no one expected a resurrection. So ends the life of Jesus, a powerful teacher, miracle worker, a heavenly prophet, a righteous man, killed by sinners like us. If only the whole world realized who he really is. 
the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Christ, the Savior. He is God who took on flesh to be born of a virgin, to live in this world, to get to this moment, to die in this way, to fulfill all that was written. We have so much to learn and process from just this event. I want to frame it in just two simple questions to conclude our thoughts. Question number one. How did Jesus spend his last moments? Because when you look at how someone spends his or her last moments, behold, that is the man or that is the woman. How did Jesus spend his last moments? Well, he was hated, mocked, beaten, tortured, humiliated, and murdered on a cross like some sick villain numbered with transgressors. But that's what people did to him. That's not what he did with his last moments. What did he do? Well, without vengeance, he kept silent after being accused and mocked, beaten, scourged. And without anger, he lovingly and truthfully warned women of judgment that will come for wickedness. He prayed for his enemies, his murderers, that they would be forgiven, saved, not punished for what they were doing to him. He accepted the repentant faith of a criminal on a cross next to him simply on the basis that the man had nothing to offer but trust in Jesus. People spent the last moments of Jesus' life trying to kill him. Jesus spent the last moments of his life trying to save them. Second question What did this accomplish? Did this even work? What, what, what was this? How is this the plan of God? Why did Jesus die? What did this do? He was innocent. He died. What did this do? Here's what the Bible authors say, starting with how it was prophesied in Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed 
Isaiah tells us centuries before Jesus enters the scene that he would die in substitution for sinners. He was innocent. He was sinless. He was righteous. He would die for the sinful, for the guilty. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Colossians 2.24 By canceling the record of debt that stood against us, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Any debt you owe, any guilt you have, whatever penalty you must pay, he nailed it to the cross. First Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Second Corinthians 5, verse 21. God made Jesus, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have already talked about the wickedness of Jesus' trial, the injustice of his death. Now sense and receive the mercy in his cross. The righteous one who knew no sin died the vilest sinner's death, the death that we deserve, to pay for our sins and to forever cancel their record so that sinners like you and me could not just be paid for not just be forgiven, but be brought to God and be counted righteous. By his wounds, we are healed. But it must come by way of exchange. He gave up his life to offer salvation. You must give up yours to receive it. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after him daily. You give up being your own boss, calling your own shots. 
making your own decision on what's good or evil for your life. And you submit to and worship Him as Lord and Master. For those who come to Him poor, with nothing to offer, nothing to boast in, nothing to stand on, who make no bargain, who come with nothing other than repentance from our sins and reverent, obedient trust that He is the Savior, the Lord, the Master of our lives. For those who come to Him in that way, there is nothing less than salvation, which is paradise, with Him, the King, starting today and into His kingdom forever. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life and death of Jesus on the cross. We want to engage our hearts with what's been said, but I hope, Lord, that it's the truth that speaks today. There is not some mood that people are swept up in. There's not some clever use of words. Not some personal anecdote. Not a profound quote from some other author. We just want to know what you said. And we want to let that truth penetrate deep into our hearts that no matter how vile the sinner in this room, each of us knows that we can come before you with nothing to offer but just to repent of our sins and trust in Jesus and we'll be saved. Hail to the King. We bow down before you. And we worship you because we know who you are. You are the Christ. You are the Savior. You are the Lord. You died for us to bring us to God. By your wounds, we're healed. So receive our worship, Lord. Let every sinner come before you repentant to be made into a saint. And let every saint sing out today and for every day hereafter to proclaim the worship of our King. We enjoy salvation starting now. But oh, how we long for that day when we stand with you in your kingdom.
grow this church, bring people to salvation, and do it by the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We pray all this for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.